about, of all topics, college football. It is, uh, no doubt, a denomination in the South. It is a uh, form of religion in our culture. And uh, it is, no doubt, a business. One could point out various programs that traditionally have become quite successful. And they operate within the system, and the system eventually, if operated well, a system will dictate behavior. I would say, unreservedly, that someone in recent years who has led a program successfully and consistently is, is, of course, Coach Nick Saban. His leadership at the University of Alabama has produced high-level results repeatedly for many years. His system adapts as the overall system adapts and changes, and he has managed to win and win consistently. His methodology, apparently, from what I can hear, is not fun. <laughs> he is one who understands the high level of practice, redundancy, execution, perhaps some would say to even an obsessive level, but nonetheless, it gets results. He has produced assistant coaches that have gone on with similar models, one would say, and have themselves been quite successful at a high level. I understand his alleged obsessiveness with excellence makes for an interesting practice. It is a practice of rehearsing something over and over and over again so that in the game, one will perform at the level that they had practiced many, many times. Some find so little joy in the system that eventually they leave. But then again, he gets results. He can open up a three-ring binder and show most any elite high school player in the country a fairly good historical and predictive uh, number that they will make in the NFL. And he produces. Now, he operates within the system that college football currently operates in himself. He understands recruiting, he understands getting to a certain level, he understands maintaining that recruiting, he understands putting people onto the next level. Is his graduation rate high? I, I have no idea. Probably not. But for those who want to play at the next level, the NFL, which stands for not for long, because no one stays for long. But it is a lucrative career move and he can, tell, he can tell a sophomore in high school what he needs to weigh when he's a freshman in college, and he'll tell you how you need to develop under his program and be successful as a team. Like it or not, it seems to work. 
and he has produced other coaches. Kirby Smart is one, coach of the uh, University of Georgia Bulldogs, who now has rivaled Nick Saban in the amount of consecutive wins at that level and is possibly going to go on to a third national title in a row. Probably adopted, inherited much of the same system that he came up in, so the system seems to work. Now, let's transition to church. I talk to a lot of pastors, and sometimes they, they share similar sentiments. Sometimes you'll find somebody who feels like uh, their job is to get up there on a Sunday morning and uh, do what they're supposed to do and do a good job of it and then move on. And when asked for another one, they'll wind him up and let him do his thing and he'll move on. And dependent upon the congregation or dependent upon the, the pastor or the preacher, there's all kind of, of ways to approach this. For an immature congregation, you can really present yourself and think you're successful by moving people emotionally. You can, you can inspire people. You can educate people. And you can feel as though you're really doing something. But in reality, Sunday morning is just a practice. We can, we can uh, bring accolades on preachers for their, for their eloquence or their level of depth or taking something that's seemingly complex and make it understandable, we can laud people with all kind of popular encouragement and all kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, the real question is, is the preaching good because on this, the practice field, it's actually put into practice in real life, which is the game? Is, what are, is the thing that we discuss actually worked out? Is, is this band that was up here, young as they are in their faith, are they growing in such a way that when they actually leave this place, they actually live their life, they're actually putting into practice that which they heard here. Now that is successful. Faith without works, you see, is dead. So the measurement, the true measurement of the success or fruitfulness of a ministry is not even if it bears fruit. We're not even called to do that, actually. We're, we're too seemingly and too quickly satisfied with bearing fruit. What we're called to do is bear fruit that lasts. This is a totally different thing. So the question is, does the system, does the, does the way that we, op, do the way we operate here and how we supplement the uh, spiritual walk and growth of a person, does it, does it last till Sunday afternoon? Is it, is it over by 60 minutes at seven o'clock or is it a part of your life and how you conduct your life and how you run your business, how you nurture your family, how you interact with the lost? Is that, that's the true measurement. Now, sometimes to be fruitful and bear fruit that lasts out in the world, here in the practice session, it's not always going to be fun nor should it. To truly be successful, 
and I realize that people interact with this church at all different levels. Some may have just stopped here for the first time and won't be back for another year. Others of you have, have spent your lifetime here. Others of you spent half your life here. Others of you are here 2.7 times a month, and, and it's, it's great, and, and you're growing where you are, but you haven't really left the practice field. You're waiting, you haven't got the Friday night lights yet. You're still trying to figure this out. So you take a, take a topic about like we're about to get into here. This actually is the third, if not the fourth week on the same topic. So somebody ought to say, well, if you were here all four weeks, you, you would say, oh my gosh, that guy's talking about the same thing. It's as though this guy's an Alabama coach. It just might be that talking about the same thing from four different perspectives is actually what is needed for it to leave the practice field and make it into the game. What I'm sharing with you right now is of greater importance than most anything that's happening in your life right now. And if it's practiced, if it's put into practice, if the execution of what we're talking about on this practice field actually makes it to the game and you actually implement it all four quarters, you're going to be quite victorious. If my job here is to play the fiddle for you, sing a song or two, do what I do, so that you left here feeling like you went to church. Well, what a waste that is. You know, we say the word doesn't return void, but we, we don't really define that very well. It's a whole lot more void if we don't put it into practice than if we just heard it. Maybe there's a degree of voidness we need to look at or of voidness. So having, having said that, let's, let's go down this road one more time on a subject that we've covered in various ways to further emphasize the importance in God's heart for what I'm talking about that would draw each and every one of us to put into practice, whatever that looks like where you are in your walk, to put into practice in the game what needs to be done. So let me see if I can do this in such a way with the Lord's help. Because this message is easier for women than it is men. You know, I, when you look in the Bible, it says there's neither male nor female. I think what that means is that we have to understand that we're both in a relationship with Christ. We're both the bride. And we don't need to look at it in a gender-specific way. We need to look at it as though he's the bridegroom and we're the bride. I'm gonna share things with you today about being in the nearness of God, that as men, if we really truly wanna be a godly man, you're gonna to have to allow yourself to be a godly boy. And this makes the execution of what's said here today incredibly fruitful in your personal life.
Okay, so review. There is, God is a hiding place. He says in, in, Psalm, in Psalm 32, he says, I am your hiding place. I, I find this interesting. Uh, each and every week I bring it up. I've been thinking about this for four straight weeks. God is my hiding place. I don't want to hide from my responsibility. I want to hide from what he's called me to do. I, wanna, I don't want to hide from everybody. I don't want to be some monastic monk cloistered together in some cave somewhere who's irrelevant to anybody who's lost and dying in this world. But he is my hiding place. He is your hiding place. How does a person become a place? A person becomes a place when we slow down enough to be still. It's our greatest challenge in this world today is to be still, be quiet, be silent, be in awe, be reverent, be still, and as we are practicing, even in this service this morning, beckoning, beckoning the presence of God that is knowable, that is tangible, but is different than the general presence of God in the earth. A personal fort, so to speak, a personal hiding place where you are enveloped in the presence of God. And you're, some of you are looking at me like, you don't understand, I'm Presbyterian. I could not care less what you call yourself. I could not care less. Your background means so little to me, I cannot even begin to tell you. What I, what I care about is that verse becoming your reality, maybe Monday or Wednesday of this week. That's all I care about. He's your hiding place. And a person becomes a place when his spirit, when his presence becomes part of your awareness, part of your intimacy with him, where you're alone with him, not with anyone else, and it means something to you, and you're there, and he's there, and you're talking, and he's impacting you, and you're responding, you're in awe of him. Whatever you wanna call it, I don't care what word you use, but it's you and him intimately together for a sustainable period of time longer than a five seconds. And you have not projected upon him the pace by which you expect him to respond to you. He doesn't respond to you in your conformity. You cannot make God conform to your timetable. It's impossible. He's not gonna change the essence of who he is. If I was, if I was raising a family all over again, if I was leading a company all over again, if I was an entrepreneur all over again, if I could go back and do one thing different, it would be this one thing. How would I, as a man, find a way to hide myself in God as often as possible so as to be enriched, enlivened, quickened, empowered, anointed, instructed, rebuked, corrected, Whatever, and whatever came out of that hiding place was earnest, was dependable, was something you could count on, was life-giving and repeatable and measurable and sustainable, I would go back and do that all over again. I would go back to the time when I first came to Christ and I couldn't stop worshiping him and I couldn't stop crying. I would go back to that 
spiritually neurotic reality where he was as more real at that moment than he's ever been in my life. He was as simple without complexity as it could possibly get. I knew as little as I ever knew about him or his word. I didn't even own a Bible, but I knew the presence of God. And my only apostles in my life, and I'm not even embarrassed to say this at this point, my, the apostles in my life were Amy Grant, Sandy Patty, Maranatha, and Steve Green, total strangers to me, none of which I knew personally, and I had no idea I should be embarrassed by making the list at the time. I knew so little about Christianity, but I knew a lot about Christ. I literally walked into the church for the first time as an adult on my own, having my own decision to go, and I literally thought that Christians were people who weren't allowed to drink soda. I mean, you can't get more ignorant than that. Everything I thought about them was about what you can't do, zero of what I had a knowledge of, of what the blessing is of it is to know this Lord. He's your hiding place. So I had to learn about stillness and silence, and I had to get a 25-foot-long cord to my 1980s headphones so that I could run around my apartment and sing to them. <laughs> it was the strangest thing I've ever seen in my life. I was a Jesus freak. Boy, would I love to get back to that. He had about him an unhurriedness, a timelessness. An hour would go by and you would think it was five minutes. I'd wait upon him. And he'd make me wait a little bit every so often. It became a little more. I had to wait until I got good at waiting. In one respect, my understanding, my experience of the Lord early on in my, in my walk as a 20 to early 30-year-old was so fruitful, so transformative that it was such a blessing. But in reality, in a way, it wasn't because I got too sophisticated. That wasn't supposed to happen. I got too sophisticated. Started to ask questions I shouldn't be asking. Wanting answers I didn't really need. I just needed the one with the answers. Uh, yeah. There's this verse in, in Isaiah. Isaiah 40 and 31, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles and they run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. Just above that, you see this. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. Are you weak? And to those who have might, he increases strength. And even to youths, these young people here, You're one of many young people in this culture that are faint and weary. 
going to utterly fall if you don't learn how to wait on God. So it says here, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, shall mount up with wings like eagles. When you can have that kind of relationship with a God that's not just a word, it's not an ideology, he's not a distant place somewhere, he's a person who could become a tangible place that means something to you, that's life-giving and life-changing, once you get to that particular place, once you get to where he's a hiding place, he preserves you. He keeps you from getting weak, irrelevant, faint, apathetic. He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, but you gotta seek him in that place. You gotta, you gotta create that place. You gotta get the person to become a place where he holds you. I, I'll tell you, um, the true measurement of the maturity of a man of God, really, I'm starting to figure this out, is meek. Humble, I mean, I've read this for years, but the meek, humble man, the meek, humble, receptive man, the man open to instruction, the man who will allow himself to, to get on his face somewhere in his home and become a hiding place with God. I'm not talking about a 15-minute devotion. I'm talking about every now and again. It's not about the devotion. It's about the presence, the presence, the presence. And I, I realize some people don't know what I'm talking about. You might, might think I'm crazy. Maybe I am, but I want to get crazier. So on to Zephaniah. Who is Zephaniah? What do we do with this guy? Well, he operated from 640 to 612. And he's telling the people, it's not unlike today, really. He's telling the people as a prophet, Nahum and another guy, they were his contemporaries, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, all at the same time. He's telling the people, listen, this is not gonna work out good. Things are not going good here. Our culture's falling apart. Our institutions are eroding. We can't tell the truth. We wouldn't know the truth if it slapped us in the face. We don't, uh, our institutions, our family, our, even our king, he got too proud and got himself killed. The, everything, the marketplace, everything was askew. And all the order of Genesis had turned into the disorder and dysfunction of uh, idolatry. And nobody really knew who to worship or what to worship or what to expect. It was really confusing. Nobody really knew who they were. Fast forward, it's kind of like today in a lot of ways. Too many ways. Only it's worse. What are we are we are finding out in the most in, in in the time when we have the most knowledge, the most information, the most science? We're, we're figuring out that human beings are capable of doing things to one another that that are so disgusting. We we we're, we're back to objectifying people, enslaving them selling them, transporting them like objects around the world. It is unbelievable what we're capable of. It's like his day in the whole southern kingdom and they're just on a collision. He says, you're gonna get overtaken, you're gonna get overtaken. He's talking about Babylon. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Well, it came in 586. And it was an ugly time. How much longer can we continue 
this is a fair question. How much longer can we continue as a culture to get more and more debased, more and more profane, more and more confused? And then eventually it gives you the idea, you know what, we, we, we operate with this identity like that we're not a remnant. You know, it's almost like if somebody was on top of their game in the pulpit, they'd almost like to start looking at the church and say, you know what, maybe we, you ought, to, we ought to start figuring out what a remnant does. What is a remnant? What does it do? How does a remnant respond? At least we'd have the foreknowledge of being sort of prepared for what it looks like when we're in a huge, huge minority. <laughs> I don't know, it takes, it takes a while for people to kind of catch on, but the more conservative anything is in this culture, the less favorable it is. <laughs> There's not too many more chances in the very near future where where something, something conservative will have the favor or the opportunity to even be in office anymore. A secularized culture doesn't like favor conservatism. And the, and the culture is becoming more and more secularized by the minute. What does a remnant do in that situation? This is what Zephaniah is trying to get these people to realize. Like, you're not like the, you're not like the common thing now. You're, you're gonna be like weird. You're gonna be outnumbered. You're gonna be the minority. You're gonna have to figure out how to respond to an overwhelming population of people who don't agree with you, don't even like you. <coughs> it's kind of sobering. What does a remnant do? Well, a remnant repents. It's the first thing they do. The very nature of remnant of people, a small group of believers exists because they repented from what everyone else is doing. A remnant repents. I think a remnant returns to simplicity and worships, prays, and worships, and prays, and worships, praise. A remnant isn't gonna have much luck judging everyone, telling everyone how they're wrong and what they need to do. It reaches a point in a society where no one's even listening. A remnant repents. A remnant returns to the simplicity of a hiding place, of, of an intimacy with God. We can't, a remnant can't afford to pretend like something is there that's actually not. A remnant needs to be actively pursuing the Lord because the sheer lack of numbers tells you that the quality of one's faith needs to be escalated and enlivened and deepened just for the sheer ratio of things. Return to simplicity. Restore broken walls and breaches. Mend relationships and be reconciled to those. Well, you start to see it as now in the family. Families fractured, spiritually fractured. The family is not all Christian anymore. It's, you know, many of you are, your families are split right down the middle. The holiday season for you is how much peace can you maintain on some of the conversations that need to be avoided? 
remnant readies their youth. And there it is. A remnant readies their youth for what lies ahead. An ill-prepared youth makes the remnant smaller and smaller and smaller. So church has to be something more than entertainment. It has to be more than teaching. It has to be training. It has to train people on how to experience their God and be empowered and anointed by their God to do what their God is calling them to do. If we don't get ahead of this curve, it'll be too late. You know, I, when we, we first thought it was funny when missionaries started coming to the United States from other countries. Wait, well, that was odd. What are these people thinking? Well, we're becoming the mission field of the world. What are you talking about? I've got a, a missions book, Perspectives, that was written about 40 years ago. I just got a brand new one. The difference between those two is incredible. We're becoming the mission field. We're sending missionaries to us. The Northwest United States, the Northeast United States, most anything on the Canadian border is starting to look like, geez, these people are so far from Christianity, it's not funny. Come on. How interesting. Zephaniah 3.17, this is it. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior, warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Say, what? Yeah, there's this tension in our culture right now between the judgment and rebuke of God and the rejoicing of the people of God. The nation is in postured itself and will continue to do so to warrant the rebuke and judgment of God. But it's his battle, not ours. We're not the instruments of judgment, he is. We are the ones that need to be separated from the culture enough that people can recognize that we are people of God, that we do rejoice, that we do worship. We're not too overly complex. We're inclusive, we're loving, but we're not trying to change the world. God is. We're not taking his job from him, but he's expecting us to rise to the occasion and to pray, to intercede, to pray for revival, to share the gospel, to be active in our faith, and to find a hiding place. Because there's gonna be a lot to hide from. What is this business here? He's a mighty warrior. See, okay, God's a mighty warrior. And then it says, he'll rejoice over you with singing. God's a lead singer. I never thought about this. I just wrote about it, and I wrote a little booklet the other day about this, and I had an entry in there, God is a lead singer. What? Like, if, God would, if Jesus was a lead singer, what band would he play for? Is it, would he sound like Steve Perry? What, I don't know. He sings over us. Now, if you're a woman here today, boy, that sounds pretty good. Serenaded by Christ himself. You can see yourself on a balcony, can't you? He's, got a, he's down on the street singing songs. He's, 
God sings over me? What is that? How do I, t- I get a hold of that? How do I get a hold of that? You know, it's funny. I asked him about this. I go, what is this singing over me business? He goes, remember when you held your grandchildren and they would cry and you'd walk them down that long hallway at your home? What did you do? I sang. I sang over their little bind, their little heart. What did I sing? Worship songs. Songs that just came to me in the moment. And what did they do? It's sometimes it was just one time down the hallway and back, and sometimes it was halfway, and sometimes it was twice. But as I sung over my granddaughters, it drifted off into a sleep. Just when you, about, about the time you could sense the anointing, when you were not just singing over them, you were singing to the Lord at the same time and they just kind of melt like butter. And I could do this at our other church sometimes. They call me the baby whisperer. I'd pick up kids sometimes and just sing over them. And he goes, that's what it means. Can you as a man I'll use man words. Hunker down into a hiding place with God. Still yourself. Quiet yourself. Open up your mind to any and everything he has to say. And you beckon him for his presence. And you ask him to hold you. He might as well hold you. He's already singing over you. Can you get there? Because if you can get there, you can influence others. If you can get there, you're teachable. If you can get there, you can be gentle. If you can get there, you can be meek. If you can get there, you could be taught. If you can get there, you'll be humble. If you can get there, you'll be mature. If you can get there, you'll be wise. Wisdom is not based on the color of your hair and the, and the number of years on your driver's license. Wisdom is based on your ability to revere your God and fear him. Can you get to that hiding place? Can you take your watch off? Now this would be too much to ask. This is really too much to ask. And this, this could cost me my job right here. Could you put your cell phone away? Long enough. Tuck yourself under the arm of your father. For some of you, you'd never had that experience. You don't know what that feels like. Hiding place is safe, man. It's safe. What kind of songs is he singing over us? It says right there, songs of deliverance. (laughs) Truth is singing truth over you, his son. 
cradling you in his hiding place, ministering to you, helping you to be the man when you come out of the hiding place that is more loving and tender and gentle and kind than ever before, hiding place. And as he sings, you're delivered. I mean, that's the power of his voice. You know what the power of song is. Now take the power of song and let it come from the mouth of God and let it be truth and let it be inspired and let it be anointed. What kind of power does that song have? We talk about going to the throne room of grace and singing before the throne. Shoot, let him do a solo. I mean, one solo and I'm set free. He only sings in the hiding place though, that's the thing. You gotta get to the hiding place. I was writing some ideas down the other day. This is what I come up with. In Christ, your hiding place, there's singing. The presence of God is the fullness of joy. Joy is often accompanied by song. In the manifest presence of God, there are songs. Songs and sounds and notes and rhythmic themes that unite together in a harmony to create anointed songs with anointed lyrics sung by an anointed lead singer. Christ rejoices and sings over you. Who could sing songs of deliverance better than Christ himself? Your mighty warrior sings over you. What does he sing? Your hiding place sings truth, and truth himself sings truth over you, and in so doing, melodic truth sets you free. We keep praying that he will set us free of certain habits and tendencies and thought patterns and what we do in relationship. But all he told us to do is come in, hide in me, and I'll sing over you in a delivery in a heartbeat. I just want to be near to you. That's all. We put in orders. We put in orders for him to do things like we're putting requests on a, on a bar napkin and putting it in the jar of the piano and hoping he reads it and plays a fiddle for us. He wants us in close proximity, in his embrace, where he's the Abba singing over you. He sings and declares melodies of deliverance. The, the beauty of his vocals facilitate an emancipation. Liberty flows from his mouth. And his singing voice sets you free from self, others, and sin. His mouth releases living lyrics of liberation. He's the leader of the band, and the band plays and sings for you and over you like a warm blanket. You're wrapped in songs of deliverance. There's probably 100 churches within, maybe 200 churches, 300 churches within 50 miles of here. You're not hearing this in any, not any single one of them. Not one single one of them is talking about this. Above you, even now, a song is being sung. Sounds from on high are being sung over you. It's not the voice of heavenly beings or cherubs or seraphim. It's the Lord himself who is broken out in song in the midst of you being broken and dazed. He takes great delight in you, and he rejoices over you with singing. And what are you that he is mindful of you? Your God serenades you. You two sing because he first sung over you. You sing Psalms and hymns and spiritual song with gratitude in your hearts to God. 
Uh, it goes on. Anyway. You can't be in a church for 60 years and not be instructed, not be encouraged to find the hiding place of the presence of God. If you've not heard that in 60 years, it's a tragedy. It, you need a refund. You should get back every dollar you gave to the church. Do you have a receipt? Bring your tax returns. It is a major ripoff. The greatest thing of Christianity is to bed yourself down in the arms of a loving father to make sense of the absolute insanity of this world. How could anybody keep you from that? It's paramount. I no longer call you servant, I call you friend. He abides in you, you abide in him. Get in the fort, get in the safe room, get in the panic room, whatever it is, get in there and beckon, beg, plead, whatever you gotta do for a touch, for the presence, for your grief, for your sorrow, for your depression, for your illness, whatever it is. You can't ask five billion people to pray for you for healing and you yourself not settle yourself down one-on-one -on -one in the presence of the person who died for you. He's accessible by his blood. Get in there. New Testament, it says, the presence of the Lord was there to heal the sick. Well, the presence of the Lord is available to you 247, friend, 247, you are without excuse, as am I. Linger, linger, linger. Doesn't happen the first, second, third, or 24th time, linger. Seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. Change your life. It will change your life. In Gethsemane. There was a tension between a Jesus speaking to the Father <clears throat> regarding the cup of suffering. While that conversation's going on, the disciples were virtually comatose of no use to him. He's having to make a volunteer decision because love necessitates willingness, not coercion or manipulation. Nevertheless, thy will be done. The very thought of it caused the capillaries in his forehead to burst. So, 
physical phenomenon that can happen when you put a person under enough stress. So the first blood that was shed by Christ was prior to his arrest. At the thought of, the notion of, his own personal agreement to drink of such a cup. In our setting, we really don't have much choice. We're fairly refined in this environment. We pick up the body and we dip it in the cup, put it in our mouth. Other context, this little wafer would be placed on your tongue, kind of perched there, set up really nice to be digested and followed by the, the blood of Christ. Let's think about all that. How refined was the Garden of Gethsemane? I've taken probably a couple hundred people from this church and other churches to Gethsemane and to pray in that very place. What was refined about that 24 hours following? We sip, we dip, so as not to stain our clothes or or even the carpet. There's nothing wrong with that. But what did he do? Once he started guzzling from that cup, not for a few seconds, but for an entire afternoon, he guzzled the stench of a mired bog of human sin that reeked of the worst of every one of us and every other person ever born in a gluttonous feast of taking in the sin of the world, staining him both inside and out, and the ground as well. The aggressiveness with which he redeemed us is visceral, frankly. So that we, in this context, can revere that action, not in a similar fashion, but nonetheless in an acknowledgement of our gratitude to be cleansed the stench of our sin. But one who gave it great thought willingly volunteered himself and endured, endured the humiliation and the forsakenness of his father on our behalf all in one day. Yes, as the communicants come forward, we will ceremonially acknowledge the bloodbath of Golgotha and the redemption of humankind. I can only say this to you as you partake of the 
bread, the body of Christ, and the cup, the wine, the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. I can only say this. Behold the Lamb, taketh away the sin of the world. Just, just behold him. Just be, just hold on to him. Behold and gaze at him. And whatever you do, remain beholden to him to worship him for all eternity. For he's worthy. Let's pray. Thank you for creating and presenting us with a hiding place that is you, that could only be you in a very dark and forsaken world, fallen and forsaken for now. Thank you for giving us a place to hide, to be held and enveloped by you in your presence where we find freedom and deliverance and where you as a river wells up from within us and overflows into this world with hope like a waterfall. Keep us on point. Center us in the simplicity of worship and prayer. And if we're gonna be a remnant, help us be the best one you've ever seen in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Please make your way reverently to the communicants in front of you and examine yourself and ask for the forgiveness of sin as you come. Honor the Christ, amen.